This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border: Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation with me, Happymon Jacob. Ceasefire violations in Jammu and Kashmir between India and Pakistan has been a major source of tension between the two sides. In fact, in the in the recent past, ceasefire violations have been taking place on a daily basis. Let's briefly review the data. Since 2014, India has reported 2400 ceasefire violations and Pakistan has reported 2900 ceasefire violations. In the last 3 months of 2017, 2018 alone, Pakistan reported 900 ceasefire violations and India reported around 630 violations. This year alone India has lost 13 civilians and 15 military personnel. This actually follows the violent trend that was set in 2017. 2017 was the bloodiest year since a ceasefire was agreed to by India and Pakistan in 2003. Make no mistake Ceasefire violations are a major trigger for escalation dynamics between India and Pakistan. It is therefore very important that we have a discussion, a thread-based discussion, a fact-based discussion on ceasefire violations and what it means for India-Pakistan relations. To talk to us about this and more, today we have Lieutenant General Atta Hasnain. General Hasnain was the commander of the Indian Army in Srinagar as the GOC of the 15th Corps. Prior to that he was the GOC of the 21 corps based in Bhopal he was also the military secretary to the government of India General Hasnain is currently associated with the Vivekananda India Foundation and the Institute of Peace and Conflict Studies in New Delhi it's a pleasure to have you General Hasnain Thank on you. the show General Hasnain I want to start off with uh, asking some basic questions about what the ceasefire violations are what are ceasefire violations what do we mean by ceasefire violations does it mean that one shot by a personal weapon by a, by an army soldier constitutes a ceasefire violations or is it more than that i'm asking this because there is a lot of misunderstanding about ceasefire violations among the general public uh, people think when you talk about 2500 ceasefire violations it means just 2500 shots fired can you give us some 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 details about ceasefire violations dr happyman first of all it's a pleasure to be speaking on your show today and i'll bring whatever experience i have of having uh, commanded a subunit a unit a brigade a division and a corps all on the line of control uh, having said that uh, whatever i'm going to be speaking is primarily um, with 2003 as the cutoff we had an environment earlier and we've had ceasefire violations earlier too but just to explain to your viewers Uh, the ceasefire which was formally in place from 1971 is the ceasefire we were speaking about at that time okay. and there were violations to that ceasefire from time to time but i want to specifically focus on 2003 exactly because through the 90s and the early part of the millennium while pakistan and india both exchanged fire across the line of control the situation dramatically changed on the 26th of november 2003 when uh, many people believe it was a unilateral ceasefire called for by pakistan which is incorrect actually there was a tremendous amount of 
back channel diplomacy which went into it and both India and Pakistan agreed mutually to come to a ceasefire. The only thing was that it was not a ceasefire in a written form. It was an understanding. It was based on a couple of telephone calls from the DGMO of Pakistan to our but DGMO. Why was this not a written uh, agreement? Because as, you, as, as an army commander, you know what is written in black and white tends to persist. What I is agree. not written down, if it is a telephone conversation, it doesn't tend to persist. I agree entirely with you what you say. I think to my, my perception why it could not be brought into a written form is primarily the trust deficit between India and Pakistan. They know very well that putting down something on paper and committing yourself to it will compromise you in some way or the other in the future in contingencies which cannot be foreseen at that particular time. All right. And it's for this reason that it was left to a convention that uh, we have agreed between us that we will no longer fire across, the, season, across this, the, the line of control. After 26th of November, I was there as a commander in Uri at that time and I remember walking to the line of control for the first time by day with no one taking a pot shot at me and with no one firing at me. I, I thought everyone was very happy, both on the Pakistan army side, both in the Indian army. Uh, the civilian population on the Pakistani side was extremely happy too, on the POK side was very happy. So was our, our population. And this situation persisted from 26th of November to sometime around 2008, 2007-8. When you found the first uh, Triggers of violations coming up primarily in the Krishna Ghati area. That's correct. In 2009? 2000, uh, late 2007 okay. through 2008 and then from 9 it picked up. That's correct. The activity picked up much more after 26-11 when you found that uh, there was a, uh, virtually a, a breakdown in the relationship. Till then a, some kind of a peace process was on. Uh, that peace process was also being facilitated by the lack of exchanges and lack of firing on the line of control. But after 2611, everything suddenly just went berserk. But despite that, from 2008 till about 2013, we did find exchanges taking place, primarily in uh, the Rajauri Punch, uh, I would say the Akhnur Rajauri Punch sector, much less in the, in the valley sector, and almost nil in Kargil, and all absolutely nil in the Siachen and Turtuke. That's correct. That's so correct. it is a very interesting observation. Why did violations take place after 2008? That's the question which you have but let's, asked. Let's come to that in, in a minute. Um, if, if we sort of focus on the first question that I asked, which is, what do we mean by a ceasefire violation? Okay. Is there a definition uh, which tells you what ceasefire violations are? Uh, unfortunately, as you yourself brought out, since this ceasefire was not a written ceasefire agreement, there was something which did not proceed it, where there were no kind of parleys between the two sides by which we could come to an, a common understanding of what would constitute a, a ceasefire violation. Let, let, let me give you a hypothetical situation. Um, supposing you have um, firing by military artillery by the two sides, which is happening now, um, for 24 hours, um, for a 24 hour period. Um, in, a, in a sector of about 50 kilometers, would that be one violation or would that be 100 violations? What would that be? Very interesting question and no black and white answers to that once again. I'll take you back to the initial instructions which came to the Indian Army forces, the troops from the, from the Army headquarters in 2003-2004, which said that even if there's a firing from across the line of control and that firing is ineffective, it does not, it is not hitting your bunkers, it is just going astray here and there, it does not constitute a violation and do, therefore you are not required to respond. What was uh, given to us in uh, almost in writing was 
that whenever the Indian Army responds, it will be a professional response, which means it will be for effect. Therefore, whatever the Indian Army normally does is always for effect. But what the Pakistan Army does many times is just a firing which is designed to send across a message. So I, I got that, which is basically only what is fired for effect Effects. gets counted as a ceasefire Absolutely. violation. from our side. Right, but in, in terms of the number of shots fired, um, how do you place that? The earlier question that I asked, um, 100,000 shots fired in a period of 24 hours in a 50 kilometer radius, would that be one violation or no. not? What will happen is that inevitably we will segmentize it to sectors. Okay. And we will look, for example, if in a particular day the punch sector has had um, a couple of shots fired and there has been a time gap, let's say about two to three hours in, in, the, in the middle, that's the common understanding, then it will constitute two different violations and the reporting procedure of those will be accordingly done. Similarly, if in the same day you've had a violation in Udi sector, that will be considered as a separate violation. And in the Udi sector, it may have happened over a period of six to eight hours that you've had a break of three to four hours in the middle. It will be constituted as two violations. So both, these, both the Director General of Military Operations on the Pakistan Army side and the Indian Army side have got different parameters. And that is why I always say statistics is not the best way by which you can actually judge what is happening on the line of control. But many times casualties may be a better judge of, of the nature of violations which, which have taken place. In any case, you would agree that uh, there is a great deal of subjectivity that goes into determining what ceasefire violations are on the ground. Um, is that accurate? Ab absolutely. There, there is. Um, and and, and you'll, you'll have to remember that uh, uh, much depends on the perception of the commanders on the ground. Right. What is the meaning of effectiveness? A commander may just perceive that something which has just come as a, as a straight shot is just not effective at all. While uh, another commander may have a different perception of it based upon his military background, etc. So uh, there is a deg degree of subjectivity to the understanding of the whole concept of violations. That's correct. Um, let me sort of, um, uh, let's discuss about the causes of ceasefire violations. Um, you've written in, in many places, um, sort of demythifying the myth that we have in India, that ceasefire violations are solely caused by infiltration of terrorists from the Pakistani side. Um, you seem to sort of uh, disagree with that argument. So, um, is, is, um, have I read you accurately? Is, is that the correct? Um, you see, this range of uh, ceasefire violations in terms of their effectiveness, or should I say, in terms of their quality, uh, is diverse. Because uh, it can be from the sub-tactical level and it can go right to the strategic level. Yeah. Let me just try and explain that to your viewers. Uh, at the sub-tactical level, it can be just a couple of pot shots fired on a patrol. Uh, along the line of control fence which is going there, not very effective and nothing major has been achieved out of that, right? And the effect of that remains very local. While you may have a violation along the international border, uh, the Jammu international border, where you find the targeting of the civil population and the effect of that is very different. Mm. The, the messaging of that is very different. So then at the much higher level, uh, many times we find a major event happening in India, for example, a major visit taking place, uh, some sporting event taking place, etc., which is drawing the attention of the world towards the Indian subcontinent. This is considered by Pakistan to be a very opportune moment 
to uh, bring about ceasefire violations so that alongside the reporting, the media reporting of the event, you also have the reporting of the violations going on in Jammu and Kashmir. And the whole issue of Jammu and Kashmir gets thrown up into the international media space. And that is one of the things. So this happens that the nature of violations are all different based upon the situations and the contingencies which, which, which exist at, at different places. All right, so let's, let's sort of try and uh, look at something that uh, I have always believed uh, is a major trigger for ceasefire violations, which is local military factors. Uh, do you believe that um, local military factors such as testing fire or um, a commander taking matters into his own hands, the, the personal traits of a personality traits of a, of a commander on the field, do these things have an implication for um, how, when and where ceasefire violations break out? Actually, your question is absolutely linked to the previous question of the aspect of infiltration. And I'll try and answer both these questions together. Uh, on the line of control, I must first of all outline the fact that uh, LOC soldiering is something quite different. It is very different to conventional soldiering anywhere else. It is a form of low intensity conflict, but at the same time, tremendous loss of life takes place. Uh, in it and, the, and, the, and there is a tremendous amount of political messaging, operational level messaging which takes place all along this. Having said that, local commanders many times are given the directions by higher commanders that uh, on the line of control one of the most important aspects for the Indian Army to achieve is what is called the moral uh, domination. Right? Moral ascendancy that ascendancy. is written about. The moral ascendancy is the actual terminology which we, which we use. And not many people have been able to ever understand what is the meaning of moral ascendancy. Please tell us, what, are, what does it mean? Moral ascendancy translates into the projection of being more, the better army. Far better domination, greater training, capability, discipline, better logistics. All this is a part of it to show that here we are a superior army and you cannot get the better of us. Uh, I can also admit that the Pakistan army to a great extent also tries to follow the same dictum. How does that translate into ceasefire violations? Now, this is what sometimes happens and this is one domain of ceasefire violations only that we are looking at. The aspect of the local uh, ceasefire violations. Many times it happens that there will be some uh, very very uh, of, uh, aggressive commanders on ground. And those aggressive commanders may not accept any transgressions in their area. Uh, infiltration which may have taken place in their area or even a odd single casualty which has taken place on the line of control. And for them inevitably it is an immediate response. Now I need to remind you that in the good old days, much before 1989, there used to be an understanding in the Pakistan army that they have the liberty to fire across the line of control at will. While the Indian army, and this used to be the messaging from across many times, used to be told that bring your orders from Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. And the Indian army used to always be seething on this. That has changed. That changed in the 90s, it changed completely. And I think after 2014, particularly after the coming of Prime Minister Modi, it has changed almost completely now, right? Where the army has been given much more powers to uh, initiate, uh, take the initiative, so to say. And therefore, the limit was only when I would, as a commander, go back to my general officer, I would say that there have been violations in my area and I would like to, I would like to punish my adversary. 
The only answer was how much ammunition would you need? So it was only a question of planning of your ammunition and, and the targeting of the particular areas. No one questioned you on your, on your will and the necessity of doing it because that was normally left to the local commanders. So as I said, many times the personalities of your local commanders, there are many commanders who would like to keep their area absolutely quiet. And it is their concept that if the area is quiet, the possibility of infiltration also is that much lessened. Right. So this is a, a professional understanding which is a perception of different commanders in the manner in which they have been brought up in their units and how they have uh, you know, carried out their activities during their service and how much of experience they have had on the line of control. General Hasnain, you would agree with me that uh, men in uniform uh, fighting in Jammu and Kashmir deployed along the line of control are the ones who bear the brunt of ceasefire violations that are regularly taking place between India and Pakistan. Um, therefore, I mean, let me give you some, some data. Uh, according to a recent report, the Indian Army killed 138 Pakistani soldiers in 2017, and India lost about 20, 28 of its own soldiers. Uh, you're talking about the rising of military casualties on the line of control. Is there a feeling within the armed forces that necessary steps should be taken by the political establishment in order to reduce the violence on the line of control? Uh, let, let me sort of explain this to you. I recently met uh, some of the BSF, BSF officers in Delhi and one of the arguments that they made was that they have been requesting the Home Ministry in India to finalize the ground rules agreement of 1961 which also, as you know, applies to the Jammu sector of the international border in, in Jammu and Kashmir. Unfortunately, that has not been done. So there are steps that the politicians should take in order to make sure that the ceasefire violations do not take place. And people like yourself who serve in the army know that at the end of the day, it comes down to you and your boys on, on the line of control. So is there a feeling within the army that steps should be taken by the political establishment? See, I'll have to explain this to your viewers in a slightly different way. Remember, no soldier and no commander ever wishes to go to war, right? Whatever degree of violence you use is ultimately to create peace. So at the end of the tunnel, there has to be some light. So if you are carrying out ceasefire violations, you are carrying out more domination activities on the line of control, inevitably it must lead to some chances of peace, which in the current contingency does not appear to be evident anyway. So having said that, is this a war in perpetuation along the line of control? Or will, it, will it be there forever? This is something which we like to ask ourselves many times. Units come and go. They stay two years, two and a half to three years on the line of control. And in those, that period, every unit would like to have achieve, to achieve something by which it can show itself. A chief of the army staff citation, for example, for having carried out counter-infiltration activities and maintained total sanctity of the line of control in its place. And therefore, soldiers from a professional angle do look forward to these kind of uh, activities of violence on the line of control. But that is a very sub-tactical and tactical way of looking at this whole problem. Right? As military commanders, as higher level commanders, we should be contributing to the overall national aim. And that contribution should inevitably lead to how to bring about peace on the line of control. Because I'm sure the government of India or any government anywhere which is facing a situation like that would ultimately look for peace. And that peace transforming into ultimately an agreement, an arrangement by which the two countries can live in peace with each other. 
we as the army should not be just contributing to unnecessarily creating more turbulence. So that is the manner in which we need to look. But at the end of the day, what we need to do is, we need to be absolutely certain that by just exchanging fire across the line of control is not going to lead to a military victory. What we need to ensure is that the purpose is the sanctity of the line of control and that sanctity must remain. Infiltration must not take place, transgression across the line of control must not take place and no part of Indian territory which is there and under our control can exchange hands with the enemy. If that is the whole purpose behind it, otherwise I'm sure no senior commander in a census will actually look for ceasefire violations. I think that's I think that's a very wise argument coming from you. Let me ask you a related question. Um, there seems to be a lot of politicization of uh, what happens on the line of control. Um, in fact, it's very unprecedented. Um, in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 1970s, as you rightly pointed out, there used to be ceasefire violations, but there was no domestic political angle attached to what happens on the line of control. Today, be it ceasefire violations, be it surgical strikes or displacement of civilians in the Jammu sector, or about building shelf-proof bunkers along the line of control in order to safeguard families and people. There seems to be a lot of politicization about on, on, on all of these issues. Does that put unnecessary burden on the commanders and soldiers manning the border with Pakistan? That's a very good question. And let me tell you that before 2003, the level of violations was far more. And casualties were even far more, many times. But nothing was reported. Exactly. This world has changed in the last 10 years, and I would say particularly in the last 5 or 8 years with the coming of social media, and a very, very proactive national electronic media. And therefore, every evening you'll find the debates, and uh, you'll find uh, uh, on social media people making comments, and people who have no idea of what the line of control is, who have never been anywhere near it, right? And unwilling to listen to uh, many people who are speaking reason that actually the two countries need to be looking at each other with, in, in, a, in the form of how to promote peace. But having said this, let me tell you that uh, I think India on its part has played a very active role in trying to bring about an effective ceasefire. It is primarily because from the Pakistani side, infiltration is required. And because the line of control is many times considered to be an instrument of proactive diplomacy. As I outlined to you earlier, when there's a visit to India, Pakistan wants to show it to the world. When the UN Security Council is coming into session, when the UN General Assembly is coming into session, when the Pakistani Prime Minister is going to New York to speak, you'll find suddenly a, a sudden high pitch of violations taking place. All this has been politicized because of that. To a very great extent. General Hasnid, I mean, I, I agree with you, but let me sort of try and broaden the scope of the question. Um, is it a good idea for the political class in India to willfully politicize the activities of the Indian armed forces in the Indian Army in Jammu and Kashmir in particular? Um, there is an argument that is often made that the Indian Army is some kind of a holy cow that it should not be criticized, that we should, that the army is about criticism, that you can't talk about things, you can't, you can't discuss, you can't criticize what the army does. Why should that be the case? The Indian army, just like the MEA or the MOD or a university, 
is an institution of the Indian state, is an arm of the Indian states. So, on the one hand, the politicization for political interests of what the army does by the political class is a bad idea. On the other hand, the Indian army, just like every other institution, should also be accountable to the public scrutiny in a democracy like India. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I don't think the army itself has ever denied scrutiny yes. of what it does yes. as such. Right. Um, it's primarily because I think we have a very vitiated political environment in India. Uh, and uh, uh, cutting across uh, party lines and things like that, I'd say the political community overall um, has looked at the aspect of muscular politics in many ways. Uh, the aspect of domination by the Indian army, the surgical strikes and everything, all being put into the space of showing that, you know, if we follow a policy like this, then we can get, the, get the better of our, our adversary. This is all temporary. I would say this does not bring about a solution to problems. But it is at the same time many times important also to bring about national spirit, a spirit of patriotism among people. But that has its limits. Absolutely. That Those limits must be maintained. How to establish those limits is the moot point, is the problem. The Indian Army, unfortunately, considered to be the most apolitical organization in the country, also considered to be one of the most apolitical and professional armies of the world, come, becomes, a, becomes the, the, the instrument to be thrown around in this entire debate between the, the, the political class, which takes, takes place from time to time. It's because of this that the Army likes to protect itself many times. And this protection primarily stems from the fact that and the perception actually which comes out is from the fact that when you start criticizing the army on issues like this, the army starts defending itself. Hmm. Right? And that defense is taken to be as if the army is a holy cow. Actually, that's not true. Many times the army does make huge mistakes. And it many times admits to those mistakes. Which like any other institution should, should admit those, to those mistakes. I have myself as a commander, as the core commander in Kashmir, many times admitted to my own mistakes. And suggestions by people to me to try and do something wrong, I have in, invariably spawned those, those suggestions, right? So, I think the army has got its models, it's got its, uh, it's, it's got its values quite intact and does not want to be drawn into these debates at all. And I would actually, through the medium of your, your, your program, actually advise people that the Indian army should be not treated as a holy cow. But it should be it should be it should be completely accountable for the actions that it takes, and the army is always willing to do that. It is just that some uh, labels are put against the on the army to say that it's an undemocratic organization, a nationalist organization, uh, a holy cow which cannot be questioned at all. I don't think that is correct. Okay, so in this, I'm, I'm very happy that you said so. Um, so in this context, um, as a retired senior commander of the Indian Army, what would be your advice to the Indian strategic community, I wouldn't say political class, or to the men who are serving in the armed forces today on how to deal with the politicization of the armed forces in this country? The first of the things I would say is that uh, I think India's strategic culture is so lacking that unfortunately no one has an idea about what the ethos of the armed forces is, what the armed forces actually do uh, on the line of control or in the hinterland of Kashmir or for that matter for on um, intense training which is carried out in the desert or in the plains of Punjab etc. No one 
among the intellectual community of India really has much of an idea and we need to promote this is primarily because the ethos of the army is not fully understood and that it is a completely apolitical and a completely professional organization that the political community many times tends to take the army for granted and takes uh, misreads the various aspects of the army that unfortunately should not be done and we need to actually educate if people are willing to be educated about national strategic affairs about national security affairs I do remember and I can tell you anecdotally that at one time when I came back after attending a program in London and a strategic studies program in London I came back and I advised uh, the National Defense College here that why don't you have members of the political community to join us for the strategic studies program just like five members of the House of Commons in London had joined our program there and they sat with me through the one year can you imagine the quality of the defense debate? Can you imagine the quality of the budget debate completely which will happen here? But I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to say that the National Defense College did take up the issue, but uh, we did not even re receive a response to it. So that is how, unfortunately, in India, there's a mismatch between uh, the armed forces who are definitely placed on a pedestal and need to be placed on a pedestal in any, in any society but uh, or place them on a pedestal with a deep understanding of what they do, what their limitations and what their strong points are. Sorry for the digression. Let's, let's come back to the question of ceasefire violations. Do ceasefire violations lead to escalation between India and Pakistan? I think there is a lot of focus on terrorist attacks in India. Uh, that escalation between India and Pakistan normally is a result of uh, terrorist attacks against India by terrorist groups based in Pakistan. That's the argument. But in the past, uh, we've seen that several times the escalation have taken place between India and Pakistan um, triggered by ceasefire violations in the absence of uh, terrorist attacks. So do you think therefore that uh, ceasefire violations should be considered, uh, considered as a major national security challenge simply because it leads to crisis escalation between India and Pakistan. First of all, to answer the last part of your question, absolutely. The fact that uh, a small violation, in, in many times on the line of control, we say that a sub-tactical situation can become strategic in five minutes. And that's, that's the way to understand this whole thing. For example, uh, the beheading of two soldiers in a tactical operation by the Pakistani border action team in the Rajouri sector became a strategic issue. 2013. Absolutely. It became a strategic issue. Uh, and, and you see, every time you have a bad action of this kind against uh, the Indian army, uh, inevitably you will find that the, the results of that transcend well beyond the operational. They transcend well beyond the operational and go to the strategic issue, to the strategic level in, in, a, in a matter of minutes. And that is why it is very important for the two sides to have escalation control. Because uh, once an issue like this takes place anywhere on the line of control, the emotions are very high and escalation will immediately spread. It, uh, the, army, the Indian army always tries to localize it. Uh, but uh, inevitably you will find that there will be an escalatory effect horizontally and definitely vertically. The quality of exchanges which will take place will probably move from just small arms to mortars to artillery to direct firing weapons and things like that. And then it goes berserk and out of control. That is the time when it become, goes up to an to a operational strategic right. level. Right. And that is what needs to be always controlled. 
So what can be done about it? We do have ceasefire violations. The ceasefire violations are spiking. And as you correctly pointed out, it leads to a certain amount of crisis escalation between India and Pakistan. What steps can be taken in order to ensure that the ceasefire violations are mitigated and they are controlled, especially at the tactical level, at the level where the militaries are engaged with each other on a daily basis? You see, there is no doubt about it that uh, unless the political environment of the subcontinent is improved, the line of control will remain the, the, most, the, the easiest place where both sides uh, can carry out certain amount of military posturing, messaging from time to time. But uh, that's easier said than done because the kind of situation which exists and the kind of relationship India between India and Pakistan, you will find triggers from time to time which will keep coming and I do not look foresee uh, any time in the future when this relationship can actually stabilize completely. So having said that, how can we ensure that there is a relative stability on the line of control? I think one of the, one of the ways is by ensuring, by ensuring effective communications across the line of control. At the moment, you have a hot link between uh, the DGMOs to DGMOs, but they are far removed from the actual uh, location where all this is happening. And in the corridors of South Block or in the corridors of the GHQ in Rawalpindi, it is not very easy, despite being experienced or anything, to perceive what the situation on the ground actually really is. And uh, uh, routinely, uh, you will find that uh, many times things do not get sorted out just through DGMO calls. What happens is that uh, if you have um, uh, um, links possibly I would say at the brigade level and particularly in the identified sectors. The, both sectors, both sides, we can identify our sectors which are considered to be hotter sectors. And then even going down to one or two units on an experimental basis, definitely a link between Srinagar and Mari, for example, or Srinagar and Rawalpindi with the 10 core headquarters of the Pakistan Army. Northern Command and 10 Core Headquarters. I mean, this can be worked out as a question of detail. What about a physical meeting between the two DGMOs? Yes. It hasn't taken place you since see, 2013. Abs absolutely, it's not taking place. But I think now what has happened is that the meeting of the DGMOs has crossed into the domain of politics. I don't think it is so easy for the two uh, DGMOs to meet because messaging uh, through the meeting of the DGMOs will be that India has diluted its stance and therefore it is willing to come on board to actually start, not negotiations, but talks with, 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 with Pakistan. Although uh, back channel talks are on between the two national security advisors, but that's a different uh, domain, that's a back channel still. This is going to be upfront if it's a DGMO and that is most serious messaging. But you would say they should meet? I would say at the end of the day, the DGMOs must meet. Why not the two army chiefs? I would say the two army chiefs should meet and to me, the best place to meet is in a, in a, in a place like Hawaii where you have the Pacific Command from time to time asking for chiefs of different armies to come uh, for small three-day, four-day programs. It would be a transformational thing if you can have a situation where the army chief of Pakistan and the army chief of India go across there and meet each other. Incidentally, the two current chiefs have both been commanders of their respective contingents in the United Nations in Congo, all under one Indian commander, General Bikram Singh, who was later on our army chief. So I think there's no reason if you have functioned together in an international security environment, 
what is the what is uh, preventing you from actually going and exchanging social niceties if nothing else uh, in a in a location abroad and that may be the first baby step towards actually improving the military to military relationship chal hasnain always a pleasure talking to you thank you so much pleasure thank you for listening to this podcast if you like this podcast please rate and follow us for regular updates you can also follow our twitter handle nsc with hj or our facebook page national security conversations with happy mon jacob